I meditated on this romantic scene of this matchmaker servant journeying across the land and stopping at a well and pleading with God to please deliver a magical virgin to draw water from the well so that he and his camels could get hydrated because you have to have ovaries to get water from the well for yourself, I guess. And in his deep and profound pleading with God, the servant agreed that if this magical water-drawing maiden did show up and draw water from the well for him and his camels to drink, because he couldn't do it himself, he would take this magical maiden back to his master and offer her to be married to his master's son, Isaac. I meditated on that. I meditated on the part of the story in which the servant's prayer for this magical maiden, which is obviously my favorite prayer in the whole Bible, in which this prayer is fulfilled just as he prayed it. And even though um, the cut of the story that we get from the um, Holy Lectionary makes it seem like she consents to this marriage, in the long version, it's actually her brother and father who consent to the marriage without speaking a word to her. I meditated on that. I meditated on the fairy tale ending of this particular clip of scripture, a caravan of camels wandering across the desert. And in the distance, a dreamy-looking single figure walks alone, and he looks up and sees the caravan in the distance. And in the caravan, the magical maiden also looks up and sees this mysterious figure walking toward her. And she slips off of her camel and she asks the servant, who is the man over there walking in the field to meet us? And upon finding out that it is Isaac, her betrothed, the maiden tucks up her veil and meets the mysterious figure in the setting sun. I meditated on that. I meditated on all of that and prayed and prayed for a queer feminist sermon. But there were these two details in the scripture that kept pulling me away from that sermon. Two two details, I'm going to share them with you. The first is what Isaac has been up to when we meet him. When Rebecca sees this dreamy figure walking toward her, the story says, Now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy. Anyone ever been to Beer Lahai Roy? It is a gorgeous place. Great nightlife, good for couples. I'm just kidding, I've never really heard of it. Um, Does anybody know if I'm pronouncing this correctly? Anybody who speaks Hebrew? All right. I am pronouncing it correctly. Thank you, Ken. (laughs) Beer Lahai Roy only shows up in a few places in the Bible. It's a place um, with a spring, so water comes out of the ground at Beer Lahai Roy. 
because of my particular life with a three-year-old, I picture River Run Playground with its sprinkler, right? In case you need an image. Beer Lahiroi. And there's just one other story that takes place at Beer Lahiroi. To know that story, we have to go back one generation. You going to go back with me? One generation back. And we have to remember this story about Isaac's mom, Sarah. Who's heard of a lady named Hagar? All right, we've got some Hagar people here. Okay, good. The story of Hagar and Isaac's mom, Sarah, is the story of the beginnings of Judaism and Islam. It's kind of a big deal. Better listen to this part. So Isaac's mom, Sarah, was Abraham's wife, as you might recall from last Sunday's reading. And Sarah had this Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. Now, Sarah wasn't able to have kids, which sucked because she really wanted a kid. And so she made this hard decision, as so many of us do, just kidding, never do this, to give her slave girl Hagar to Abraham as a second wife so that maybe Hagar could give birth to a son for Sarah and Abraham. If you're thinking The Handmaid's Tale, yes. This is The Handmaid's Tale minus the Scrabble games. Otherwise, it is exactly The Handmaid's Tale. So Hagar, this slave girl, is forced to marry old man Abraham, and she gets pregnant, fulfilling her purpose as a slave girl wife. Um, But her pregnancy causes this tension between Sarah and Hagar. There are some emotions on both sides. And Abraham, uh, always the doting husband, is like, well, Sarah, she's your slave, so do whatever you want with her. Because marriage and all the perks that that offers, right? And the text says, Sarah dealt harshly with her, and Hagar ran away. Which, if, if you are familiar with the way slave masters often treat slaves, Sarah dealt harshly with her is probably a euphemism for something pretty horrible. So this abused slave girl, Hagar, who is pregnant, runs away from Sarah. And she runs to a place where there's a spring of water. She runs to River Run Playground. And there, God appears to her and tells her that you know, it's going to be okay. You're going to have this son named Ishmael. You're going to have lots of descendants. It's going to be okay. Go back to Sarah. And it's after this miraculous meeting with God that this pregnant slave girl names this place Beer Lahai Roy. So that is the origin story of this place. Beer Lahai Roy is a, is a place to which... Isaac's slave stepmother, pregnant with his half-brother, ran while escaping the abuse of his mother. Right? So, so this line, now Isaac had come from Beer Lahai Roy, is not just like a random Bible line to be skipped over till you get to the marriage and the war. No, it's kind of deep, right? He's, he's wandering around this deep place. And then the text says, he went out in the evening to walk in the field. And the word for walk, the thing he's doing out in the field, um, is a confusing Hebrew word. Um, But some interpreters say it has the meaning of, of to meditate. 
He's out in this field meditating, coming back from Bir Lahai Roy. So that's what Isaac is doing um, when he's out there in this rom-com hunky guy scene walking toward Rebecca's caravan. He's in this deep meditation uh, coming back from this slave abuse sanctuary. That was a detail that caught my attention. And then after the romantic meeting of Isaac and Rebecca and the, this kind of like yada, yada, yada of them getting engaged and planning the wedding and the bachelor party and the bachelorette party and all that stuff, then comes this second detail that I was really drawn to. You ready for the second detail? All right. It's the last verse of the story. It says, Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebecca. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's a little weird. Um, A little wife-replacing mother, woman doing the emotional work for a man kind of thing. A little weird. But I also haven't been able to get away from this verse. Because it's about grief. It is so real and visceral. It's, you can just like feel this son grieving deeply for his mom, needing someone in his life to comfort him. You can see him stumbling back into his mother's empty tent where she lived and laughed and suffered, where her clothes are still hanging in the closet, where her comb still sits on the dresser, And her soaps still make the bathroom smell like the good days. I haven't been able to get away from this verse. Because I can't seem to get away from grief. So here we're going to make a turn. I know that's this beautiful summer day and the world is uh, focused on fun and sun. Um, But at church we talk about what's really going on in our lives. and, And grief is really going on. In addition to two weddings in the last three weeks, yesterday I also attended a funeral downtown. A clergy colleague of mine, Jason, lost his wife at the age of 43. And Jason and his wife had a little boy together, just a little older than my baby. And that little boy woke up last Tuesday without his mama and Jason woke up without his wife. We can't seem to get away from grief. A few weeks ago marked the fourth anniversary of my own father's death. And I know some of you know how those anniversaries, those birthdays, those random, random days can sneak up on you. I know some of you in here are grieving too. We have loved and we have lost in the last year, in the last decade, in our lifetimes long ago. Whenever it happens, our losses are a part of us. And they take a lot of work and energy and space as they should. There's an awful lot to process and to honor when someone is here and then no longer here. Jason and his little boy are just beginning that hard grief work this week. 
many of us are still doing that hard grief work, no matter how long ago we lost. And I can't get away from this verse because Isaac also is just beginning that hard grief work for his mom. And he brings Rebecca into Sarah's tent. When I was training to care for people in hospitals, I remember that they told us, when you go into someone's room, look around. What's in that room? Are there fresh-cut flowers? Are there photos or stuffed animals? Or has that person been there for a very long time and there's nothing in that room? You can learn a lot by looking around someone's room. You can learn a lot from looking around someone's tent. I wonder what Rebecca saw when she was invited into Isaac's mom's tent. Were there fresh-cut flowers, photos, stuffed animals? And I wonder what she saw as Isaac wandered around that tent. A lot of grief work, as I've experienced it, is about walking around my loved one's tent, walking around their life, picking up and examining their experiences, opening the cabinets and the tightly shut drawers of my relationship with them, revisiting their tent over and over again, trying to make sense of it, trying to memorialize it. When I'm doing the Greek grief work for my father, I re-enter his tent. I pick up his wallet, and I find our family photo from when I was about 10 years old, creased and very worn, and I can let the tears come, knowing how much he loved me and he thought of me. And then on a different day, as I wander around his tent, I notice the old black and white portraits that used to hang up in our living room, portraits of young Chinese military officers that my father served with during World War II. And as I grow older and meet other Asian Americans with parents that lived through those times of war, part of my grief work has been to touch those old photos again and to complexify his memory, to know him not only as an angry and paranoid father, but as a traumatized veteran and a man who lived most of his life under martial law. Sometimes we find beautiful things in the tent, like family photos, and sometimes we find hard things, like tokens of war. And our grief work is to somehow make sense of them all. I wonder if Isaac was doing that hard grief work when he met Rebecca. I wonder that because Rebecca first found him meditating in a field after visiting Bir Lahai Roy. I wonder if Isaac, as he wandered around his mother's tent, looked in that shoebox in the closet and found the old photo of Hagar and the son that she gave birth to, torn up into pieces. I wonder if he's still processing that happy memory of playing with his older stepbrother, Ishmael, 
a happy memory that was interrupted when his mom got so angry that she sent Hagar and Ishmael away to die. I wonder if he wonders what that was like for his slave stepmother and his stepbrother and what they think of him now and what the future will be for the children of Abraham, Isaac's Jewish children, and Ishmael's Muslim children. And I wonder if he walked into the tent with Rebecca and opened the kitchen drawer and pulled out Sarah's old kitchen knife and wept wept about the trauma because this was the blade that his father had had in the bag when he took Isaac hiking up the mountain and it was the blade Abraham raised to slit Isaac's throat because he thought it was God's will to sacrifice his child. You know this story? And the angel came and said, breaking news, God doesn't want you to kill your own child and they all lived happily ever after except that Isaac had to live his life holding that trauma. And Midrash says that when Sarah found out she could not live any longer in a world where her precious child could be murdered by her husband. And Midrash says that is what led to her death. I wonder if Isaac wept in the kitchen in her tent. It's those complicated objects in our loved ones' tents. That difficult stuff, that violent, angry, tragedy, suffering stuff that can take a lifetime to make sense of, that can make that grief work a a work worth coming back to again and again. But I want to come back to Rebecca here. Because having just spent a few hours yesterday with a church and a pastor colleague who were just walking into an empty tent for the first time. I think some of us have this question of what to do when you are watching someone do that grief work. When you're first approaching someone who's wandering around in this blur of a distant wilderness trying to process the first pangs of memories. And when you're in those moments, perhaps you will think of the courage and the love it took Rebecca to take someone's hand, a stranger's hand, and to be led into the tent of someone they loved, to simply hold them steady as they step from her favorite armchair to his most worn-out book to sit with them on the old couch and touch a shoulder while they sob or let them tell you a story about that little trinket on the shelf. And to do that the first day and the next week and on the anniversary and the 10th anniversary and on the random, random day when the tears come again. St. Paul and St. Andrew, we are the proud spiritual descendants of Rebecca. Do not forget that many of the strangers and friends that you meet today 
have an empty tent or a few that they visit every once in a while. A grief, a loss, an absence. And some of those tents hold great trauma and pain. Let that understanding be a vehicle for our compassion and love for each soul. Amen.